we'll now hear today's scripture reading, uh, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. Good morning. Today, God speaks to us from Acts chapter 15, verse 1, uh, verse 6 to 11, verse 19 to 20, and verse 22 to 29. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the, the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from, from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth that what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual morality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for some of us here today, uh, you very much need to hear that Christianity requires far less of you than you assumed or have been taught. For some of you here today, you need to know that Christianity requires far more of you than you've assumed or have been taught. And all of us here today need to know that Christianity, and more precisely Jesus, gives freedom from that which keeps us from all that God has created us for. That it's freedom from burdens and from lies that you are told that make you, that you believe, make you worthy or acceptable to Him. And for those with ears to hear today, I want you to know that there is real freedom available to you this morning. And so I pray that you and I experience the words of Jesus when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. May that be true for us today. Now today we're going to continue on our series, Extraordinary Through the Ordinary, uh, which is we're going to be looking today at our passage, which is uh, snippets from Acts 15. And in Acts 15, essentially what we see is a gospel, good news of freedom. And I want to look at several perspectives on freedom in our passage, which focuses its attention on God's law 
and the freedom that is available through that law. And so what I want to do, looking at Acts 15, I want to note a couple of things. I want to look at how there is freedom from the law, freedom toward the law, and freedom accomplished in the law. Okay, let's look at those three things from Acts 15. First, freedom from the law. Uh, We have to start, of course, by understanding what's happening here in our passage, because there's a lot going on. Acts 15 is essentially the first church council that's ever taken place. Uh, Over the course of church history, there would be many more councils to come. And out of those councils often come important teachings that we now hold to be gospel. So uh, the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., ended the debate that was going on about the deity of Christ. Uh, The Council of Constantinople in 381 ended the, the debate about the Trinity. Uh, in the Council of Chalcedon in 451, ended debates about original sin. And that could go on and on. There were many other councils. But these councils would come together because there were serious issues uh, and debates happening within the church. And so they wanted to bring clarity on the biblical teaching around these issues. And Acts 15 is the first time that this happens. A council comes together to address a real issue. And so with that in mind, what then is the real issue? What is so concerning that it required everyone to come together? Well, if you've noticed in our series, especially since uh, Acts 15, or I'm sorry, Acts 10, there's been a certain tension that's been building in the narrative. See, in Acts 10, we see the first Gentile converted to Christianity. Uh, And the reason why this was significant was because the Christian faith uh, sprung from the nation of Israel. And so, Many of the early converts, they were Jewish. However, God had always intended uh, that the promises that he made to the people of Israel would actually be fully fulfilled out into every tribe, nation, and tongue. God's intention was always that this good news would go forth to the world. And this is why over the last several weeks, we've seen so much of an emphasis on unity in Christ that all peoples from vastly different backgrounds were now coming together and they're now being unified as one new people that that are now called Christians, as we saw last week. And the reality is that often living in unity feels impossible because of this vast diversity that takes place. And Acts 15 shows us one of the reasons why this unity was so difficult all the way back at the very beginning. And so to explain why this was this tension of unity existed, I want to walk through the passage a little bit. If we're able, can we throw that, uh, can we throw that back up, the passage back up? Let me walk through this a bit so you can see what's happening in the passage. So first, what we see uh, initially is we see that certain people, let me just read this for us, uh, verse 1 there, certain people, oh, lost my spot, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. All right, let me stop there for a second. So what's happening? More and more Gentiles are coming to faith as the gospel goes out. And attention began to build around what was required of the Gentiles in order to be accepted as part of God's people. Now, as we said, Christianity grew out of Judaism And so as a result, there were those who were called Judaizers, who were Jewish Christians, who began to require Jewish customs 
of the new Gentile believers in order for those Gentile believers to truly be called Christians. And specifically, a debate arose around whether Gentiles were required to be circumcised. Now, if you know Jewish custom and law, and uh, Old Testament law, circumcision was required uh, for one to be included as part of God's people. Circumcision, though it was practiced by uh, many ancient cultures, it was actually vital to the Jewish people because it was a physical representation of the covenant that they had with God. And I know that for many of us in modern times, that seems like a really strange practice, especially as it relates to being part of God's covenant community. However, especially for ancient people, there was great symbolism wrapped up in it and especially for God's people, Israel. Because like all the other Old Testament practices, circumcision and all the other laws that we see throughout the Old Testament, they were uh, vivid and tangible pictures of far greater realities. Let me give you an example of what I mean. So consider the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It seems strange that animals would be brought and killed uh, because of the sin of the people. And so it's important to know that the sacrifices weren't actually effectual in the sense that God needed an animal to be killed. Rather, the death of an animal as a result of sin was a reminder that a rejection of God's law and his creative order for the world is grievous because a rejection of God as the source of life and the source of order in the the world will end up leading to death. And so God requires sacrifices, not because he needs a dead animal, but as a vivid reminder of a far greater truth. Consider the ceremonial and purity laws of the Old Testament. They, too, were a reminder that we needed to be cleansed. Again, they weren't significant in and of themselves. They were pointing to something far greater. And circumcision was similar in that it was pointing to the fact, to the reality, that we are cut off from the promises of God if we are not faithful to the covenant that God has made with his people. If we reject his covenant, we will be cut off. This was the greater truth and reality of circumcision. So it was a vivid, vivid reminder. Now, that's the background. The debate here, though, is how necessary are those customs and those laws and traditions with regards to salvation? Should those who are not of Jewish descent be required to adhere to these old customs? And the laws that God required in the Old Testament, are they required still now that Jesus has come? And to push it further, is salvation available to those who have not adhered to these old laws? And in response to that question, right, that's the debate happening in the church. The council writes a letter to those who are struggling with this question, and that letter starts in verse 6. Again, let me just quickly read that again for us so that we're clear. Here's their response to the question. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them and said, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them. And here it is. For he purified their hearts by faith. Interesting. Note that. Verse 10 goes on to say, Now then, 
Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So here's the conclusion. Peter argues that the ceremonial laws of old should not be required of the Gentiles because in the end, it is not the adherence to the law that cleansed them. That they, should not be, that they should not put these unnecessary yokes on the Gentiles. Rather, it's the grace of God in Christ and the Gentiles' faith in Jesus that purifies them. But here's where I find this a really interesting dynamic. Let me look at, again at verse 11. Verse 11 says that we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In other words, here's what I find to be very interesting. The ceremonial laws never saved anyone. It was only faith in the one who instituted the law, Jesus, that saves. It is faith in the lawgiver, not obedience to the law that saves. And so to be a Christian, to be justified, is not by works, but by faith. And with that in mind, do you know who the first Christian was? I mean, it could be argued, if you know biblical history, it could be argued that it was Abraham, a man who lived centuries before the law was ever given to Moses. Do you know why? Because in Genesis 15 and then in Romans 4, it speaks about it again. We're told that Abraham was justified or that he was saved not by his works, but by his faith. So even before the law was given, Abraham experienced justification through faith, not the law. Faith in the lawgiver... Not the law is our hope. Now, I started off today by saying that for some of you, you need to know that Christianity requires far less of you than you ever assumed or have been taught. Because some have grown up in environments where rules and customs and commands and expectations were the basis on which you were either, you felt accepted or not accepted. And maybe some of those rules and commands even had a biblical basis But in the end, you were treated as though your ability to follow those rules or commands was dependent on whether or not you'd ultimately be accepted by God. And that is what we call legalism. That is the exact belief that the council is rejecting in Acts 15. Because it's faith in Jesus, the lawgiver, that saves, not adherence to the law. We are free from the burdens of achieving perfection or righteousness or morality as the basis of our exception before God. And so in that sense, there is freedom from the law as we trust in the lawgiver. But I can't stop there because there's actually more to say. Because I know that for some, you might be thinking, sweet, I don't have to do anything. I can do whatever I want. And if that's your impulse, just know that you're actually not the person I've been talking to up until this point. Because now I want to talk to you. Because while there is freedom from the law, there is also freedom toward the law. Let me unpack what I mean by that. So Jesus calls us to himself just as we are. Requires nothing of us to come to him. Nothing from us to be accepted except trusting in him. And we are loved by him because, and through this faith. Again, we trust in the lawgiver, not the law. That said, 
What then is our relationship to the law? Does it mean that I have no obligation to the law? And the short answer to that is no. We do have obligations to the law. Again, where I started, while some need to know that Christianity requires far less, some of us need to be reminded that it requires far more than you've maybe expected or assumed. And so what we need to try to understand is the Christian's relationship to the law of God. Does the Christian have to obey specifically, does the Christian have to obey the Old Testament commands? And the answer to that question is it depends. There are essentially three types of Old Testament laws that I want to put in front of you quickly. The civil laws, the ceremonial laws, and the moral laws. All right, let's try to understand those just very, very briefly. First, in the Old Testament, there were these civil laws. They were the laws that governed the nation of Israel. They were, uh, you know, Israel was a nation like any other nation, and so they required certain laws to govern the nation and the people. And these laws, though they're helpful for us to consider, are by no means obligations for the Christians today because we are not in the same situation as national Israel was at the time. All right, so that's number one. Number two, you also have the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. And those were related to worship and purity of the day. Now, as we've said, all these laws pointed to something far beyond just themselves. They were ultimately pointing to the work of Jesus. And the purity laws uh, pointed to the one who would ultimately make us clean, which again was Jesus. The sacrificial laws pointed to the perfect sacrifice who would be Jesus. And so in this sense, the ceremonial laws are not required of the Christian because, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, he came to fulfill the law. And that was part of what he came to fulfill. So these ceremonial laws, these sacrificial laws, they have been fulfilled by Jesus. But then you have the moral law. And the moral law is that which God deems to be good and right and just and holy and in line with his character and will. I mean, the easiest summary of the law of God, of course, one of the places is the Ten Commandments. That'd be a good place to go. But then there's also many other uh, laws that are given and commands that are given all throughout Scripture. And these are laws that Christians are obligated to obey. Why? Because, again, they align with the character and nature and will of God. Just to give you an example of what I mean by that. You know, when God says that we should not murder or slander or gossip or harbor hatred, obeying his commands in this way will ultimately be good for us because when we do those things, we are rejecting the image of God in others. We're denying the dignity of God in others. And when we start to deny that dignity, it begins to corrode and undermine who we are. It leads us ultimately to death. And so this idea of not being murderous, slanderous, or being a gossip or hatred, it aligns with the character of God. And when we align ourselves with the character of God, it will go well for us because it's how we were designed. Uh, when God, God has much to say about things like sex and sex being within the confines of marriage, it's not because God's a prude or he wants to somehow squash our desires. It's because he intends for sex to reflect the intimacy and the covenant relationship that he has with his people, which is deeply rooted in unwavering and obligated love. And so because of that, he calls us to align ourselves with his character and with his will. And as a result, it will go well for us. 
You know, in God, we've been talking much about generosity. When God calls us to be generous, it is because generosity reflects the extent to which that we have recognized His generosity toward us. When we are generous, we are aligning with His character and with His nature, and as a result, it will go well for us. See, obedience to the moral laws of God are not the way that we're accepted by God. Right? We trust in the lawgiver, not the law. However, trusting the lawgiver will lead us to a desire to be obedient to his law. You know, I'm a, I'm a father, and so in a sense, I've gotten I don't know, a little taste of what it means to be a lawgiver. Uh, you know, you, you create rules. And so I've, I've had a little fraction of this reality, especially when uh, my kids were younger. Uh, this would be, certainly be the case. You know, do they need to obey me? Sure. In some sense, yes, of course, they do. But why do they obey me? Because in the best of circumstances, they know that I would know what is best for them, and so they would obey when I say something. Let me just give you a really simple example of this. That would certainly be the case for when they were younger. Consider the, uh, the example of crossing the street. And crossing the street on our way to the park. We come to the intersection, and the park now is in view. And if you can imagine, uh, especially for a little kid, now they're very excited to get to the park. But because I know that cars are coming, I tell them to wait and not cross the street. Now, how might they respond to that command? Well, there's probably one of several ways that that might happen. Number one, they could completely disobey me and put themselves in grave danger because they don't see what's coming and they run out of, into the street to get to the park. That's one scenario. Another scenario could be that they will listen to me, but they do it kicking and screaming, that I won't just let them go. And so they may obey, but they do it begrudgingly, and they're angry with me for making them do this. Or the third could be that they trust me, and because they trust me, they know that I love them. They know that I see more than they do. And as a result, they submit to the command because they trust that I want what's best for them. Now, usually, children with parents, but also with us, us with God, usually we opt for option one or two. Let's be real. We figuratively maybe run into the road because we don't care what we're being told. Or we maybe begrudgingly obey because we feel like we have no choice. But for the Christian, there ought to be a desire to grow into option three more and more. Trusting God's love and care, which will result in obedience. That when he says something, we trust that it is for our good. Because the opposite of all of this is also true. Not trusting his love will result in obedience. Or disobedience, rather. When we disobey God's commands or when we are begrudgingly obeying his commands, we are saying, God, I don't trust you. I know what is best for me and you are keeping me down. I mean, that is the root cause of our disobedience, a lack of trust in him. But this is why there is freedom toward the law. Because when we experience the freedom that Christ provides, it actually moves us closer to his commands and his laws. And I'm not talking about the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Like I started there so we can be clear. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the laws that reflect God's intention for his creation. Obeying his commands will lead to life. And his laws reflect how he created us 
to exist. And some of us here today, our disobedience is proving the extent to which we don't trust him. And that disobedience is working against our ability to live fully and completely as he intended. And so in this sense, some of us need to know that the Christian faith, your relationship to God, requires more of you than you've probably expected or you've assumed. Because God's calling you into something far greater than this disobedience and this lack of trust. And that's not to say that if we obey God, our lives are going to go perfectly, but it does mean that we have a greater opportunity to know God in deeper ways when we obey. And so in this sense, there is freedom when we trust and obey because we are now aligning with the character of God, aligning with the ways that He's intended us to live. So lastly, okay, if that's the case, if we trust and obey God, if we are to, to live as he calls us to, why should we trust him? I mean, right, that, that seems like an obvious question. Why should I trust him? What has he done to prove that he is trustworthy? Well, that brings us finally to the freedom that's accomplished through the law, in the law. So if we are to trust the lawgiver and not the law, but then prove our trust in the lawgiver by obeying the law, Again, there should be a reason. He deserves that level of trust. And there's a single reason why we should trust him and trust his commands are good. And that single reason is Jesus himself. The work of Jesus is the reason. It's the only reason we trust and obey. Because God knows that there is no way that we would ever be able to fully and completely obey his law. He knows that we don't even have a desire to obey his law. And at the same time, he also knows that our inability and lack of desire to obey the law is ultimately going to lead to death. And so he's got a couple of options. I mean, one option, he could leave us in that state of rebellion and rejection against him. But instead of leaving us there, he sends his son. And it would be his son who fulfills that law perfectly for us. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus did not sin. And because he did not sin, we now are able to become the righteousness of God. In other words, as we trust in Jesus, he is our perfection. He is the one that accomplishes everything for us in order that we might know and love God and, and love his word. But because of disobedience the disobedience that we've experienced. Again, we've said it leads to destruction. It leads to death. Jesus also not only lives perfectly for us, but he also takes that burden of destruction and death upon himself. Right? The law demanded that death for the rejection of the law be experienced by those who have rejected God's commands. But on the cross, Jesus takes that death upon himself so that we might experience life. While at the same time, we can be reminded of how seriously God does take sin. It's so serious that Jesus died for it. And so we, when we see the perfect life of Jesus and the sacrificial death of Jesus, we ought to feel this freedom from the law. It's not the law that's going to save you. But we should also feel this freedom toward the law because the freedom that Jesus accomplishes for us causes us to desire to love and trust God in deeper ways, which will result in a greater obedience. And so my prayer 
for all of us. For some of you here, again, you need to be reminded that there is far less required of you. Trust in Jesus. Lay down your striving. Lay down all the attempts that you've, uh, that you've tried to have in order to achieve acceptance and rest in faith in Jesus. But some of us here also need to know that far more is required of you. You are being disobedient, and you know the areas in which you are not trusting God. He's calling you now to move toward his law that you might experience the life that comes as a result of doing so. The final thing I want to address, and I'm, I'm going to be brief on this, but I, I want to note it. Uh, if you're paying attention to Acts 15, there's a really weird verse in there. Verse 29 uh, is actually really weird given everything I just said. Uh, because through the letter, they're stating that the Old Testament laws are not required of the Gentiles. But then the apostles and the elders, they give this really strange list. They say that we ought to then abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. What in the world is that? All right, sexual immorality makes sense, right? So God gives commands about sexual immorality in both the Old Testament, the New Testament. All right, that makes sense. But the rest of that list is really weird. Why did they request that of them? Well, it's simple. And it gets to the same thing that we have been talking about at this week for three weeks. This will be the fourth. When there is freedom in Christ, there will be things that you are free to do. However, that does not mean that one should do them. And there are many reasons why that might be the case. Maybe one example would be, let's say one has uh, some kind of substance abuse struggle, maybe with alcohol. In Christ, you are free to drink alcohol. But wisdom might dictate that you don't. Right? That may be one example. Another reason why one might see a freedom in Christ that they could have, but maybe they choose not to, would also be not just for my own sake, but also for the sake of my community which is what they're getting at here. Christians are called to care for and build one another up. And we ought not violate the conscience of others with our freedom. And so that list that you're seeing there is a list of things that would have been very difficult for Jewish Christians to accept because they had grown up deeply in understanding those things to be a violation of that which is good and pure. They'd always kept those laws. And so it's so interesting. The apostles are writing to the Judaizers saying, do not require these things of these new Gentiles. But then they speak to the Gentiles. And they say, listen, you are free from these things, but you must also consider your weaker brother, who is not yet strong enough to handle such things. Therefore, abstain. This is the kind of loving community that the church ought to be where we're sacrificing for one another in order to build one another up. And I end with this because our journey has been driving us toward this, hasn't it? That there is this unity that ought to be experienced for those that are in Christ. And we do what is necessary to love one, one another well, to care for each other well, to encourage one another, and even make sacrifices for one another. I pray that the Church of Christ is more and more like this, that we become known for such things. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you, God, for, um, for freedom. We thank you for the freedom that you provide us. For those who have been weighed down, believing that there is 
tasks and rules and commands that they must obey in order to prove themselves acceptable to you. God, I pray that you would give them rest from their striving. Help them to see that it's faith in Jesus, trusting in the lawgiver that provides us salvation, not the law. And God, I also pray for those who struggle to obey. Pray for those of us here who don't trust you like we should, and as a result of that lack of trust, we're disobedient. God, would you draw us to yourself and remind us that your law is good, that it reflects your character, and that as we trust you more, we will see life come from obedience. And God, again, would you make us a community that is loving, compassionate, and sacrificial, that we might love and care for each other well. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.